seated. Uh, I'd like to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And I'd like to uh, introduce a new short series on understanding biblical prophecy. I had some requests about this, and uh, I'm going to go to uh, the very first prophecy in Scripture tonight, a passage that you've heard before, that I've preached on before, but use it in a, in a new way to uh, seek to give you some categories to explain a major emphasis of the Bible, the promise of the future. Let's uh, hear together from Genesis chapter 3, and um, I'll pick up reading in verse 9 for context. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree. And uh, I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Amen. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray once more together. Uh, our Father in heaven, we find in this verse all that is uh, hopeful and delightful in the Bible. The whole story of redemption compressed into uh, a beautiful, but in many ways, a dark verse. And so it is, our Father, we pray that you would give us illumination, not only that we might be able to understand this promise and its glorious fulfillment in Jesus, but to understand a great many more promises that you have made, that we might set our hope fully on our Lord Jesus and all that you have promised us in him by the power of your spirit, where we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Many American Christians especially, perhaps many of you here, grew up hearing about the end times and prophecies of the things that were unfolding before our very eyes. A book on end times prophecy called The Late Great Planet Earth was the best nonfiction, excuse me, best-selling nonfiction book of the 1970s. Time magazine called it the nonfiction book of the decade, the late great planet Earth, uh, a book on prophecy of the end times. More recently, of course, those same end time scenarios were made newly popular in the Left Behind series of books, which everyone's forgotten now, but before Harry Potter, they were the number one best-selling fiction books in history, the series. This a series of books sold by the hundreds of millions and spawned at least two major films. Um, these matters were very, very important to American Christians until not too long ago. 
this, this, this just uh, 15 years ago or so. I, I was struck recently listening on the radio to J. Vernon McGee's exposition of the Psalms on his Bible bus that he's going through right now, um, of how much his understanding of the end times, the fancy word is eschatology, how much his uh, understanding of the theology of the end, his eschatology, influenced every part of how he reads the Bible. Psalm after psalm was being explained of how it would be fulfilled in the coming millennium and in the, in the kingdom age. Um, I, I must admit that I didn't necessarily hear anything prophetic in the psalms that he was going over, even after his explanation. But my point is, um, you used to have to understand the end times in order to understand practically any part of the Bible. And whether it spoke, for example, to the church age, perhaps, or to the rapture or the tribulation period or to a millennial kingdom, often connections were made to today's headlines. And so it was electrifying to hear how things were being fulfilled in our own time. Uh, eschatology, it seemed, was everything. Christian views of the end times were the cause of some major fights and even divisions in the church. One of the reasons that there is today an Orthodox Presbyterian Church and a Presbyterian Church in America, PCA, is that a long time ago, in the 1930s, some amillennialists and some premillennialists had a bitter falling out in what was then a single church. Uh, sorry if you don't get all those words, but uh, some rather nuanced understanding of what, what the end times would have for us and how to read biblical prophecy. These weren't the only issues, but those were particularly acrimonious. It was strongly felt by some that biblical authority, if not inerrancy, was hanging at stake on this issue. Now, many things have changed, and I'm glad to say that they've uh, changed both in the OPC and the PCA, and that there's a, a, a lot of uh, uh, different understanding uh, mixed up in both of those churches that are a lot closer together in those areas. But my point is that eschatology, the study of the end times, has left a profound mark on American evangelical Christianity. Now, I, I say all this to say that per perhaps we have the opposite experience now, that um, biblical prophecy is all of a sudden hardly emphasized. Um, it's perhaps less understood, less appreciated than it should be. The Bible has a great deal to say about the future, including, of course, predictions that have now already come to pass. From the very beginning, the Bible orients God's people forward, toward the future, toward events that have not yet taken place, toward the fulfillment of the Lord's wonderful promises in order that they might put their hope in Him. It's, the Bible is always, always teaching God's people to look forward to what He will do, even if sometimes it's not all particularly clear at the moment. As one scholar puts it, from first to last, not merely in the epilogue at the end, Christianity is eschatology. It is hope. It's forward-looking and forward-moving. The eschatological is not one element of Christianity. It is the medium of the Christian faith and the key in which everything is set. Well, kind of fancy scholar language to say that you know, you, you, you name the teaching of the Bible. It only makes sense or takes shape when you consider it in light of the future. I mean, what are sin and guilt? They're, they're nothing unless we have a conviction that one day God is going to judge the world. 
and there will be a profound future reckoning. Justification then is nothing if in fact there is not that great day coming in which there will be sheep separated from goats. Sanctification is nothing if our lives are not heading toward a goal and if the growth that I talked about this morning isn't at last going to be vindicated and rewarded. Faith itself, we read, is the substance of things not seen. And so many of those things not seen are in the future. Things that will someday come to pass, certainly at least when Christ appears. Faith, we read in Hebrews 11, is the conviction that God is a rewarder of those who seek him, orienting us to the future, and on and on. In other words, what, what that scholar was saying is, uh, everything has to be seen in light of the future. Nothing the Bible teaches is unrelated to or independent of what will unfold in a certain way. And what's more, um, we, we might say that these, uh, these uh, things about the end times uh, don't stand on their own. It's, it's all of a piece. Uh, there is this great unfolding future in the Bible. Um, unfolding eschatology. You can't understand these things that are coming if you don't understand the promises that have already been given and already made, things that have already come to pass. It's, it's all part of one great plan, not uh, disconnected. And so you cannot understand what the Bible is telling about the future until you go back and examine those things that have already been predicted. In, uh, and the ways in which they have been described and how these have already come to pass in many cases. So what I would like to do with you for the next few weeks when uh, so many of you are in and out, some holiday break, some of you even not back from Thanksgiving break yet, uh, I'd like to take a pause and, and try to give you some thoughts about the coming of the Messiah as it's been given in the Bible, and about how that has already come to pass, how, how things are still working out, actually, um, from those promises, and how they, they will gloriously, finally, come to pass at the end, and how the coming of the Messiah, as a theme in the Bible, uh, is able to help us understand so many of these passages that are sometimes dark. I'll, in other words, I, I want to try to teach you in four weeks, something about biblical prophecy to give you some categories to understand the Lord's promises that may help you put things together. Here in the passage for this evening, Genesis 3.15, the single verse that we're going to look at, we read, I will put enmity, that is uh, hatred, between you and the woman and you, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This dark promise made at the very fall of mankind is the very first mention of what will become the Bible's central major theme, the salvation of God's people by a coming redeemer. In fact, the rest of the Bible, in fact, the rest of history is simply an unfolding of that one verse. And this is a very interesting verse, and in so many ways a challenging verse. I remember I got my, uh, I got my uh, final for Genesis to Joshua 
biblical studies class when I was in seminary. It had one question on it, my, my, my final exam. Um, ex explain biblical history from Genesis through Joshua in light of Genesis 315. Uh, off I went. Uh, this is a very interesting, but a very challenging promise. What's it saying? As it is so characteristic of many predictions in the Bible and the language that is used, I'd like to point out for you several things that I hope will help you not only explain this passage, but explain a great many like it in the Bible. First, we find in this passage the mystery. The mystery. What is this saying? How, how Adam and Eve must have talked this over. The, the seed that we are to bear that's going to bruise the head of the serpent. Will that be our firstborn? And as Eve lifted up her, her firstborn son and said, I have begotten a man from the Lord with the help of the Lord. Is this the deliverer? Is, is this the hope of the world? Poor Eve, not understanding that in so many ways her son would be a profound disappointment. No Messiah, but her murderer. And down through the ages, as this, as this verse continued to play on their minds, what does it mean? Now, in every modern edition of the Bible, um, in many versions, even of the editions, even of the of the King James, where uh, in older translations it wasn't, it's it's probably set in your Bible in, in verse. Is it that way in your Bible? It is in my New King James, the NIV, ESV, I, NAS. I checked a whole bunch of translations. Uh, many most editions, most new editions of the King James, have it in poetry because it is poetry at this point rather than prose. When the Lord speaks to the serpent, starting in verse 14, he switches in the Hebrew grammar uh, to, to poetry, which I won't get into the nuances, but is, is different than prose. And this is interesting. All, all of a sudden, the, the Lord goes into poetry. And poetry, you know, is typically less precise though more vivid and more picturesque, but it's not quite the same as prose. We're, we're told here in this poetic description of a seed of the woman who will uh, bruise, crush the head of the serpent. What does this mean? Uh, well, much later we learn that this serpent has a connection to Satan and that the seed of the woman is connected to Christ and that that all of these things have, have a much, much richer meaning than they would have ever known who first heard this. None of that is remotely suggested in the actual text. All of that would be unfolded later. Genesis 3.15 is, if you like, uh, a, a picture painted in broad strokes. The future is given poetically. We don't have a plain prediction. And this, too, is entirely characteristic of biblical prophecy. You, you know that enormous sections of verses about the future, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, are, are in poetry, um, in, in, in written in a way that it's, it seems very hard at the time, especially, to, uh, to understand what is being said. And one of the reasons that people, frankly, argue so much 
about eschatology is because there's so much room left for argument when, when this is what's said, when it's so little detail. The, the, the passage surely has a true fulfillment in Jesus, but not in the way we might expect. We have a picture of a man, and we have a picture of a snake. And there is enmity between them. God has put enmity, enmity between them. And as it were, the man raises his heel to crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent, in his anger and hatred, sinks his fangs into the descending heel. It's, uh, as it were, one motion where the man says, despite the pain, I will crush you because I hate you. And he drives his heel down on the serpent's head in a moment of intense pain, but glorious victory. And the serpent, in a moment of hellish delight and total destruction, sinks his fangs into the man's heel. That's the picture. And, I mean, we, we can see that uh, this has had a wonderful fulfillment supremely at the cross. We see the fulfillment of this prophecy of victory. The seed of the woman suffers. His heel is bruised. He's put to grief. Uh, and yet in that suffering, he gains the victory. He destroys the work of the serpent, as Hebrews said. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. The, the cross is ultimately this victory where the seed of the woman is struck and yet has, in principle, his victory over Satan. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3. And, uh, well, all of this fulfillment would be quite a, quite a great surprise and delight to the ancient people who must have argued about this for years, right? They had their own eschatology conferences, and they were predicting this and predicting that. And the, the, the truth is, God was full of surprises. He was going to have this fulfilled in a way that uh, no one could have written the history ahead of time. No one could have written the history of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, out of all the prophecies given beforehand. They were all true. They all came to pass perfectly. But they were written in such a way that they allowed for almost unending surprise when the Lord himself actually showed up. No one could deny that the life, ministry, death, and resurrection were spoken of, prophesied beforehand, but those prophecies were clouded in mystery. They left many things unexplained. And that is very typical of prophecy in the Bible. Well, the promise did unfold. And the unfolding is an important feature we'll come back to, I think, next time. The seed of the woman, we learn in particular, is going to be fulfilled in the seed of Abraham, and then the seed of Jacob, and then Judah, and then David, and then Joseph. Only much later do we begin to see how this Redeemer is going to actually bruise the serpent's head. And this progressive revelation has to affect all of our study because it's, it's, it's all of one piece. Now, not all prophecy is poetic, thankfully, some things are just stated. When Paul writes a letter to the Thessalonians, he just says what he means. But there is hardly an eschatological text in the Bible that doesn't have this very difficulty in understanding just what exactly was predicted. 
only after the fact does one see clearly what was meant after it's come to pass. But point one, the mystery in prophecy. Um, I think that you should very strongly suspect anyone that has all the mysteries figured out. I mean, they, they, they've got all, the, they got all the years of Daniel right down into some great chart. It's, uh, as Russell thought, 19, uh, 1858, 1914, 1917, you know, that, the year, that the Lord's going to return. He had, he had all the mysteries solved. Uh, that's, that's just not the way that prophecy is given in the Bible. It's, it's given in a mystery so often. Uh, second, we, we have something here about the time of fulfillment. There's a promise here of the future. Well, I guess all promises are about the future, right? He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, when? Nothing, nothing said. Um, these things will take place, but, but we don't know if it's going to be in a week or in 10,000 years. And this is very characteristic of the biblical predictions of the future. There, there are prophecies, it sounds like, just right around the corner, you know? Just, just a few years, and everything's going to be fixed. And, and, you know, many of the most vigorous debates about the meaning of various prophetic statements are about just when those things will unfold, and, and are the signs of the times at hand today, as every generation of Christians has always had plenty of people convinced about that. Everything would be so much simpler if, the, if they just a- added a few dates, right, onto this. Or at least said, you know, the seed of the woman's going to crush the head of the serpent during the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilate was governor of, of Judea. Wouldn't that be nice to have that in Genesis 3? Just put the timetable out there, and, and, and no one would have had any understanding of those things, but at least God's people would know that the end would not be uh, of the serpent until until that took place, until those people showed up. But of course, they had no idea. It was going to come, there was, there was some time of delay, and then it would be fulfilled. And then it gets even more complicated, even in the fulfillment. When is this passage exactly fulfilled? Well, we, we might look at some passages in the Gospels, as I already mentioned to you, and think that Christ has crushed the head of the serpent when he died on the cross and rose again. And the Lord Jesus himself spoke about this in various ways. Uh, You could think about binding the strong man and uh, plundering his house and so forth. We we might think, well, yep, okay, it's already all done. Then Then we go to Romans chapter 16, where this uh, verse is quoted exactly with uh, one or two changes, I guess I should say. Romans chapter 16, the end of the book of Romans, where Paul, just in, in signing off, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, um, he has a few words to say, but then, uh, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Well, this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus, right? Yes, it's fulfilled. It is fulfilled, but it's not exhausted. And this is another often troubling aspect of biblical prophecy, where we, where we have to say, uh, 
was it fulfilled then? Or, or was it fulfilled then? Or is it being fulfilled now? Or, or is it still going to be fulfilled in the future? And, and we realize it's, it's uh, the time of fulfillment is not quite so simple. The Dutch have a nice clever phrase, now and not yet. Uh, in seminary, Richard Pratt talked about the inauguration where it happened in principle, the continuation where it is happening now in our life and experience and consummation where it will at last finally happen on that day. Uh, that, that's, that's true about just about everything in the future uh, when you look at it in the Bible. Yes, it has been fulfilled. Satan's power uh, over the nations has been broken. But, of course, he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is not yet utterly destroyed. And the crushing of the serpent continues. And the God of peace is crushing Satan under our feet. Yours and mine, John Calvin comments, the power of bruising Satan is imparted to faithful men. It is the common property of the whole church. That you and I, when we are telling our neighbor about Jesus, are crushing the head of the serpent, who had previously, of course, deceived the nations and had utter power. And now the kingdom of God is having its advance. So it's, it's, it, it, it happened in Jesus at the cross. Yes, the decisive victory has been won, kind of like D-Day, right? The, the, D-Day was a victory. And it's, the rest of it's just mopping up. But of course, most of the, most of the American casualties were in the mopping up effort, right? Um, there's, still, there's still a war that has to be finished. And because, although Satan has been defeated in principle and his dominion has been taken away from the nations, there is still a bruising and crushing that must take place as the, na as the gospel goes to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we, the church, the, the seed of the woman in Christ, we still are crushing the head of the serpent. And the serpent still sinks his fangs into the heel. And we, as the people of God, uh, we advance as we suffer. And we suffer as we conquer. Right? Book of Acts. That's the missionary story. It means pain for us, but it means ruin for him. And the God of peace is crushing Satan under our feet. And so you say, okay, is Satan already bruised? Is he not yet bruised? Is he partially bruised? Is he bruised in principle, not yet fully in historical fulfillment? Uh, precisely when is this going to all happen? Of course, this will ultimately and finally happen as He's cast into that lake of fire. But questions like these multiply times without number in the study of biblical prophecy as we, as we have to say that uh, what's, what might seem, when you read this, like a, a, a second. The, the heel comes down, the fangs strike, that's the picture. And then we realize this covers an enormous period of history from the coming of Christ to his second coming. And that we are in the middle of its fulfillment now. Well, this, uh, this uh, 
now but not yet. Inauguration, continuation, consummation. This confusing aspect where we say, has it happened? Is it happening? Will it happen? The, the, some people will read some prophecy and say, oh no, that hasn't been fulfilled yet. That's still coming uh, when, when Jesus returns. Oh, oh no, says the other person. That's been completely fulfilled in the church, right? Uh, that's a premillennial or amillennial argument, right? And, and you have to say, you know, those are both true. Uh, it has happened in principle, it is happening now, and continues to happen in, in, in biblical fulfillment, and it will gloriously have its consummation. And we, we need to be able to use these categories to understand biblical prophecy. Um, I'm going to shorten my, my sermon. Uh, the big picture. The big picture is the third thing. Genesis 3.15 gives us what's sometimes uh, called uh, the prophetic perspective or prophetic foreshortening. Prophetic foreshortening. Um, it, it shows it as a single act in a moment of time. And, and anybody who read that would surely say that's what it says, that's what it means. And, and, and yet, um, biblical prophecy often sees the entire future as a single event. So sometimes people have, have likened it too. If you, if you look over the, the mountains of the uh, Alleghenies on this side, or the Blue Ridge on that side, it, it looks uh, a lot of days like a single ridge line. But then you get up to it and you go over this and you go over this and you go up this mountain, you go down this mountain, and, and you realize, uh, wow, this goes on for quite a long, quite a long time. Um, in the prophetic perspective, the future is often given as a snapshot, as though that's it. And this is characteristic of so many prophecies and creates untold problems of interpretation. As it seems from many prophecies that, uh, like this, the, the, the Redeemer, the seed of the woman, is going to suffer and conquer and uh, undo the, the work of the devil that he's done. Well, all that is happening, of course. And yet, um, how, how, how full and, and rich this is when it actually happens. The prophet, in prophecy after prophecy, we read how the Messiah comes and he establishes his reign and peace flows over all of the earth. And it, it, it was not at all clear to the ancients that there would be thousands of years between the inauguration of this and the total triumph, which we do expect, and its continuation in the meantime through uh, his own reign here. These prophecies um, are, are often given as a single unity because it, it, it is in one sense. But when we read something like Matthew chapter 24 and 25, we, we, we start with some prophecies about the temple. Do, do you see these great stones? Oh, Jesus says, not one of them is going to be left on another. Well, well, when? When shall, we, shall these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And uh, you start to read, and it's pretty clear at the beginning. You're talking about Jerusalem, and it's pretty clear at the end. You have, you have reached the fulfillment uh, of the end of the world. And uh, as to where one has given way to the other, it's, it's not clear. It's, it's, it's as though it's all one. It's all part of one big picture. 
even, the, even in that very clear prose as opposed to the darker poetry of old, uh, it, it's difficult to say. The big picture is what's so often given. And we need to recognize it is like those mountain ranges that in the fulfillment there's, there's a great deal of history which is yet to come, a succession of events spread often over long periods of time that can't be understood at the moment that you read the prophecy. Uh, there's the partial perspective, number four, the partial perspective. In this prophecy of Genesis 3.15, we have nothing told here about Israel or land or about the Holy Spirit, nothing about prophets, priests, or kings, nothing about heaven or hell. And we, we just have this one picture. And this, too, is characteristic of biblical prophecy. It, 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 it would be so helpful if there was just one part of Scripture that, that said, okay, uh, here's all the major features of the promise of the future, uh, all drawn together in, 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 with a single chord. It never happens. And this causes no end of difficulties. We're given this piece and that piece and that piece and the other piece. And it, and it all fits. But, but how are these things linked up together? What goes with what? To name one um, famous problem. Just where does Israel fit into the scheme of the consummation of the ages, if at all? And there's a lot of talk about Israel in biblical prophecy. And what part of that has to go with human history? And does that have anything to do with, with what's currently happening in the Middle East? Uh, I mean, people used to be practically at blows over this question in a previous generation. Um, many in our own church disagree profoundly with the answers that they, we might give to that question. And, and how, can, how can we have so much discussion over, over something like that? Uh, it's, it's because we are often given, we are always given, I should say, the partial perspective. This part, that part, the other part, and it's hard to hold together. Fifth and finally, the messianic motif. Getting a lot of uh, vocab words tonight. I can see how excited you are about that. The messianic motif, a motif the dictionary says is a dominant idea or central theme, a recurring thematic element. There, there are motifs in the Bible, which come up again and again and again, that ultimately tell us about the Messiah and his work. The seed, the kingdom of God, the prophet, priest, and king, the, the servant of the Lord, the restoration of God's people, the new covenant, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the day of the Lord, the last days, the judgment of the wicked, and the salvation of the nations, the renewal of the universe. These biblical motifs account for virtually all of the biblical vision of the future. There's only about a dozen motifs that, that just keep on coming up again and again and again. And um, here in Genesis 3.15, we read about this seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Well, what, what kind of seed? Is this, is this to mean the offspring, plural, of the serpent? Well, uh, the offspring, plural, of the woman? All right, well, we might think so, but then we have in verse 15 here, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Very clearly the singular. There, there is this singular aspect to the seed. 
and uh, you, you know how this works out. Um, I have a, a lot of verses I could point you to, um, simply just to give you an overview that Abraham and his seed get more promises, um, even though there's very, very little at the beginning that seems like it can possibly come true. He, he, has no, he has no offspring at all. Um, I mean, even Lot has offspring, but chapter after chapter, there's, there's nothing uh, until at last the promised seed comes. And is this the deliverer? No, not yet. Uh, a promise is then given to Judah. A promise is given to David in 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I'll establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for my name. I'll establish his throne forever. We've been singing tonight from Psalm 89 of the seed. And uh, it's uh, very important then for the New Testament writers to speak of Jesus Christ, of the seed of David. Uh, the promise is spoken to Abraham and his seed. The scripture doesn't say seeds like many, but as to your seed, meaning Christ. Or later, what's the purpose of the law? It was added until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Um, or that famous verse you'll hear later uh, this month. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. What's that born of the woman thing about? Genesis 3. It's, it's a fulfillment that Christ, the seed of the woman, has come. And uh, this promise gets brought up again and again and again. This motif will carry us through. And so whereas we have these prophecies that are partly piecemeal here, there, and what does this have to do with this? These motifs uh, give us a straight course through to the end of history. Well, in conclusion for tonight, eschatology, the study of the end, is found in the Bible from the very beginning. It's all of one piece. And if you want to master it, you have to learn its idiom, its language. These biblical passages, so often in poetry, have a language and a style of their own. One definitely should not expect one kind of prediction uh, if you look back and you see already that a different kind of prediction uh, best fits the Lord's dealings. Well, from Genesis 3.15 onward, God's people have been oriented to the future, to a Redeemer's coming. And look forward, we do still today. Think about this. We are in some ways in the very same situation as all of God's people in history. From the time of Adam and Eve, all of God's people for so many centuries have waited and waited and looked to the Lord for the fulfillment of his promise. Generations have come and gone. Centuries have mounted up and still wait for the fulfillments and his glorious appearing. I mean, they only knew certain things about him back then. We know much more today. But we should be greatly encouraged that he has already come once. And we wait today for the coming again of that same king. And if God has done so much to fulfill his promise to this point, we know he will surely do the rest. Generations come and pass away. 
centuries mount up, and it is easy to think, as it has occurred to more than one generation, where is the promise of this coming? Until that day, the people of the Lord will always be those who, as it were, look to the east. The people of the Lord, until the last day of history, will be eagerly waiting for him, looking for his sign in the heavens, longing for his glorious appearing. It is one of the truest marks of real faith and belonging to God from the very start that a man or woman of God is longing for his appearing. Oh, dear friends, we uh, think so much uh, this time of the year of his coming, and yet I'd like for us to think about him not only in his coming, but in his coming again, and how at last all that has been promised will be fulfilled. For in Jesus, the yea and the amen is spoken. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks for the redemption that is accomplished by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he has been wounded for our transgressions, that he has been bruised for our iniquities, that he made himself of no reputation, and he set his face like a flint. In all that the prophets have spoken, he has gloriously fulfilled. For there he suffered, and there he conquered, and he rose again in order that we might have victory in him. Now we pray that as we also, as the people of God, are, as it were, following him with our crosses, as we also are crushing down the head of the serpent, we pray that we might do so in hope and joy, knowing that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Grant that we, your servants, may still have hope and that that hope might abound to the full assurance of our ultimate victory in Jesus.